So turn with me this morning to the book of First Thessalonians. We'll be in First Thessalonians chapter four, looking at verses thirteen to eighteen. First Thessalonians chapter four. And as you turn there, Paul, in his second letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, uh, warns him. He, he warns him about some who have, are in the church who once were faithful, have now proved themselves to be unfaithful, proved, proved themselves to be dangerous. And we see in 2 Timothy 2, verses 16 to 18, he says, uh, he gives this instruction to Timothy, Paul does. He says, but avoid irreverent babble. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. These two men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, were going around and spreading this rumor that the resurrection had already happened, and Paul says they were upsetting the faith. And why would that upset the faith of some? Because if your hope in this life is the resurrection unto eternal life, and you're saying the resurrection had already happened, what you're, what, what they're saying is you've missed the bus. The bus is gone. You have no hope of resurrection. You have no hope of eternal life because Jesus Christ has already returned. The resurrection has already happened. And now you have no hope. You have nothing to look forward to. And so you can imagine some people would abandon the faith if they thought well everything i've hoped for everything that i've been told will come well it's it's gone i missed it so what point is there in in going further and since jesus's ascension there have been false predictions and irreverent babble about the second coming of jesus christ has not yet returned but what i want us to see this morning is that christ jesus is coming again for all of his people. And so as we turn to our passage today, we find that Paul's instruction of encouragement to the church is to remember that Christ Jesus is coming again. And his second coming will be unlike his first. In his first, right, he came as a babe in a manger. He came in the weakness of flesh. But his second coming will be one of authority and power of God, a king coming to rule. And so let us look at our passage this morning, 1 Thessalonians four thirteen through 18, and this is the word of the Lord. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with them those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left unto the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these <laughs> words. Paul really 
wants to be face to face with this church, right? He's, he's said that already in, in this letter to them. He, uh, he wants to be face to face with them so that he can strengthen their faith. He wants to make sure that they are firmly established in the truth. He wants for the people of God to stand firm in the midst of all of life's trials. And to that end, he does the next best thing, right? He can't be with them face to face, so he does the next best thing. He writes to them. He's already sent to them his fellow missionary and great help unto himself, Timothy. But he writes to encourage them. He writes that they may know the truth, that they may stand in the truth. He writes that they may have the hope of Jesus. And that's the first thing I want us to see this morning in verses 13 and 14, the hope of Jesus. And he begins, right? We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. And I, I, a brief note as we begin to wade into this is that as we look to our passage today, it is instruction about the end times, but it's not one in which Paul gives us a definitive full orb theology of the end times or uh, the big uh, you know, $10 word is eschatology, the study of the end times, where we don't have that here. Paul's purpose in this passage is not to give us everything we want to know about the end times. His passage is to give us encouragement. And so we'll see that as we go along. So I just want to, uh, I want to state that out at the beginning because sometimes we go to the passages like these and we want to, uh, in a sense, abuse them in trying to come to some definitive timeline about the end of times. And we don't see that because that's not Paul's pastoral purpose here. That's not why he's writing. Um, we might use, try and use this passage as a cudgel to beat back the amillennialists and the post-trib rapturists. And if you don't know what any of that means, it's okay. <laughs> right? Uh, that's not our purpose for today. We don't need to know those terms. Um, but it makes for good study later. So I would encourage you to go find out what some of those terms mean, right? It, I'm not saying don't study that, but that's not our purpose here this morning. And Paul's instruction here doesn't really seem to be about bad theology. He doesn't say to them, brothers, we do not want you to be misinformed. He does that a little bit in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verses 1, uh, 1 and 2. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or spoken word or letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And he goes on there in 2 Thessalonians to give some instruction. Right there, he seems to be writing about them being misinformed. Here, he wants to ensure that they are not uninformed. So it doesn't appear that he's writing against a particular bad theology in their midst, but rather he just wants to encourage them. He's writing to brothers and sisters in Christ, right? He says to brothers or brothers and sisters. We could, we could uh, translate that word there in the Greek. He's writing to Christians. And so something for us to understand is that what he is talking about in this passage is Christians. So when he talks about those who are asleep, that's a Christian who has died. And when he talks about that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope, he's talking about Christians grieving the death of another Christian. So that's the context for us. That's that's the background for us. And so who are those who are asleep about those who are asleep? Well, I've already given that. It's a euphemistic way to talk about the dead, that those who have died. This was a common cultural way to describe those who had died. And it even carries over into our own day today. 
What does rip mean? Rest in peace, right? That This idea of rest. What do you do when you sleep? You rest, right? So it's this idea of resting in peace, sleeping in peace. We, we see this even today. There are some, and this is a, a small digression, but we do have to address it. There are some who think that what Paul is talking about when we see the words sleep, for instance, or in, in elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, in reference to the dead, that this is um, a term uh, that we might call soul sleep. You might have heard that before, or, or maybe not, but you should know that it at least exists, that there are some who posit that when a person dies, their soul goes to sleep. And that they, that's kind of exactly what you would do when you sleep at night. You're, you're unconscious until the day of the Lord, until the day when Christ returns and calls his people home. And then you wake up. So you wake up on the day of judgment. You die, you go to sleep, and then you wake up on the day of judgments and your soul is in the grave. Um, however, to, to kind of push back against that, uh, Paul, for instance, says 2 Corinthians 5 8. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Or you may know it better in the KJV. I think it, it's more memorable this way. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Or even Jesus uh, with those who were uh, those thieves that were being crucified with him alongside of him. Uh, to one he says, right, Luke 23 39 to 43, Luke 23, 39 to 43, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, that is Jesus, responds, Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Or we could look to the first martyr of the church, Stephen, and that's in Acts 7, 54 to 60. And I'll kind of summarize it a little bit there. Stephen is being stoned to death. He's been arrested. He's being stoned to death. And as he gazes into heaven... He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That's verse 55. Then verse 56, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they continued to stone him. Jump down to verse 59. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He doesn't say, Lord Jesus, let me go to sleep in the grave until the day of judgment and then receive my spirit, right? He says, receive my spirit. He sees the Lord Jesus in verse 60 and falling on to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So I just want to, that's a digression there, but it's something we have to address. When we talk about this idea of sleep, we're not talking about this idea, this theological idea, uh, a wrong theological idea that a person who dies in Christ goes to sleep in the grave uh, until the day of judgment and then wakes up and, and is, is in heaven. No, a person who dies in Christ Jesus immediately goes to heaven. The spirit goes to heaven and there is coming a day when their body will be resurrected from the grave and transformed. And uh, we don't have time to fully delve into all what that entails, but that's that's what we see in the scripture. That's part of what we see here. 
But Paul is talking about here who have died in Christ and who are now at his side. And what hope do they have for restoration and resurrection? Because see, understand this. Our bodies are not a byproduct of God's creation. They are the purpose of God's creation. And indeed, when we, uh, the, the new heavens and the new earth are meant to be inhabited by bodies. Right? So one of the hopes that we have in Christ Jesus, one of the hope of the Christian is that we will have a new body in glory where we will be on the new earth in a body. A body is not a bad thing. It's a great thing. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, and even we today, uh, though we are broken by sin and though they are corrupted in sin, right? Uh, we have, we, we can see a little bit of that. Uh, we probably had some good, uh, food yesterday. You can see a little bit of that, right? The pleasure of, of a good meal. That that is something God designed. That's not a bad thing. Right? When God created Adam and Eve, when he created man and woman, it was very good. And that includes our bodies. Our bodies are not bad things. Our bodies are not the only thing, right? We have a spirit and a body, but bodies are not bad things. So what about those who are dead, whose body now lies as dust in the grave? What hope do they have for restoration? Or are they just going to be disembodied spirits for the rest of their lives, for all of eternity? The great question for the Thessalonians would be, what happens to the believer who is dead when Christ returns? What happens to the believer who is alive when Christ returns? Will a Christian who died when Christ returns be a sort of second-class citizen in the kingdom of God because their body is in the ground? Do we who are alive, if we are alive at Christ's second coming, does that mean that we have a better footing in the kingdom of God? by virtue of our bodies still being alive? And these are relevant questions to us today, I think, even though maybe they're a little less pressing in need because we have 2,000 years of Christian history in the past. We have the full canon of the scripture that instructs us. And indeed, what we are looking at today is instruction to answer these questions, these kind of questions, but it's more than just instruction. It's also encouragement because Paul says here, right, at the end of verse 13, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Paul is writing that we may not grieve over, over grieve, over mourn. And let me just say here, it's okay to grieve. Mourning is appropriate. We're not commanded to be emotionless stoics. Christ Jesus was not emotionless. And understand, guys, that Christ Jesus evidenced more emotion than just anger. Right? Our culture says that the one emotion, there are probably two emotions that a guy, as a guy, you can express. One is anger, and the second maybe is happiness. But maybe tinged with a little bit of anger, too, because, you know. You always got to be a little angry. No. Uh, when we lose loved ones, we grieve. We should grieve. We're, it's right to grieve. And indeed, Paul says in Romans twelve fifteen that we are to mourn with those who mourn. But we do not grieve as those without hope. So what is our hope? John 14, 1 through 4. John 14, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Also, believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Jesus promises that he will prepare a place for us, his people, in his Father's house. And he is coming again to take us to him. We will be with the Lord Jesus, our Savior, forever. And let that sink in here for a moment. This is the hope that we have. And it is not a distant hope. It's not a wavering hope. It's a sure and steadfast hope that what Jesus has promised to us, he will accomplish. We will be in the presence of our Savior forever. He who loved us so much that he was willing to bear the wrath of God for us. He will come to get us. He purchased us. And he will come to collect us. The unbeliever, if you don't believe, you have nothing but the promise of destruction. When the unbeliever dies, they will suffer for all eternity. The believer, however, has the promise of resurrection. When the believer dies, they will enjoy the perfection of their God forever. So brothers and sisters in Christ, when one of us dies, if we are indeed in Christ, we mourn. We're sad. We grieve. We're sad for the loss. We kind of, we ask the same question that the hymn does. Will the circle be unbroken? Will the family ever be complete one day? And the answer is, if you trust in Christ, yes. Yes, there is coming a day when we with our Savior will be. Continuing on verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. How do we know that we have this hope? How can we be sure? How can we grieve as those who didn't, we don't grieve as those without hope? How do we have that hope? Christ is alive. He died. Christ died. Jesus died. He was in the grave. And there was no question, as some like to posit, that, oh, Jesus wasn't really dead. He, he just swooned on the, the cross. That, that he was just so overcome with the suffering that he just, uh, you know, he, he passed out from it. No, he was dead. How do we know he was dead? There were Roman soldiers there who were really good, really good at making sure people were dead. Really good. Uh, so much so that they jabbed the spear into his side to make sure of it. Right? There were checks. They were tests. They knew Jesus was dead. The disciples knew Jesus was dead. But, and this is the amazing, powerful work of God. He breathes. He's alive. Jesus is alive. He is right now standing at the right hand of God in heaven. He, and if God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He can do that for you as well. He will raise you too. The hope of Christ is this, that all that He accomplished in His life and death is for us. And in his vindicating resurrection, we have the sure sign that he is indeed the Son of God. He is the Christ. He is the one in whom we must place our hope. 
Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said this in Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The assurance of our resurrection is rooted in the reality of the resurrection of Christ. These two things are inseparably linked. If Christ is raised from the grave, we who put our trust in him will be raised from the grave. And the reverse is true too. If Christ is not raised from the grave, we have no hope of being raised from the grave. 1 Corinthians 15 is instructive on this point. Go read it later. And here's the implication too of what Paul is saying. Death cannot separate us from Christ. He says as much in Romans 8, 38-39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is your rock-sure hope, beloved. Christ Jesus is alive. And if he lives, you will live even though you die. But this is not the hope of everyone. And this will not be the reality for everyone. This is only for those who believe. And so why do we care about praying for those who do not believe in Christ? Why do we pray? Why would you pray for someone you know who does not believe in Christ? Because we know that without the work of God in their heart, that they will not believe what the scripture speaks plainly. Why do we care about telling others about Christ? Why do we emphasize evangelism? Preaching the good news, proclaiming the truth of Christ, preaching the gospel, right? All these ways of saying the same thing. Why do we care about that? Because unless the person who is lost in their sins, unless they hear and believe, unless they repent of their sins, unless they turn to God, they will die in their sins. They will die the second death, as it talks about in the book of Revelation. They, the death from which they will never recover. They will suffer for all of eternity because of their sin. That is why we care. And I want the weight of that to press upon you this morning. If you don't trust in Jesus, turn to him today. Confess your sins today. Don't delay, for he will return. And in love, he will gather all those who are his own. But he will also have the angels gather together all those who do not believe in him. And then he will cast them forever into the eternal fires of hell. God, have mercy. But beloved, those in Christ, there is the blessed call of Christ for you. So let's see that secondly in verses 15 to 17. The call of Christ. Paul continues and he says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Paul is not speaking here on his own authority, but a word from the Lord. And he, he is speaking something of divine revelation. Although we don't know precisely, commentators, scholars, we don't know where these um, this word particularly comes from because we don't see it in the Gospels. So maybe it was something unrecorded of what Jesus had said. It could have been something given to him by special revelation. We know that God revealed to Paul certain things. 
Or it could have been some other special revelation to some other prophet in the early church. But what we do know is, right, that this is the word of the Lord. And what we have here is about this matter. Those who are asleep in the Lord, those who are dead, will not be left behind. And in fact, Paul says that they will go first. Now, there's a second interpretive matter as we come to this verse that we have to deal with. And ex- what exactly is the content of this word from the Lord? What is that where, where is that begin and where does it end? So again, commentators are, are differ on this. Some say that the word from the Lord is the, the second part of verse 15. Others say that the second part of verse 15 is kind of a, a small encapsulation, a small summary of what the word of the Lord is in verses 16 and 17. Uh, and I would probably lean more towards that interpretation of this. Uh, because that summary statement seems to then be expanded by verses 16 and 17, uh, because of there's some repetition going on there. But no matter, what do we to make of this? Because all the scripture is scripture. All of it is God's word. Uh, and so whether it's the words of Jesus, as we have in some of our Bibles, which are in red letter, uh, th- that's God's word, yes. But so is all the words in, in black ink. It's all the scripture. And all the Bible is God's word. And all of it is utterly reliable. It's inspired and inerrant. So what does Paul say? He continues on verse 15, right? That, that we who are alive. And now again, let us pause here. I know there's a lot of pausing in this verse. Uh, why does Paul say we who are alive? And again, there's different interpretations, different conclusions that we draw from here. There could be some say, some commentators say that Paul says we who are alive because he fully expected that Jesus would return during his lifetime. And so Paul saying we who are alive, he, he means Jesus is coming back soon, like real soon. And so uh, I expect to be part of what those who are alive. Others conclude that this being a very early letter of Paul, that maybe Paul initially thought that he was going to be alive by the time Christ's return. But later on, as his kind of theology developed, as his understanding of Christ developed, as he grew older, he opened up to the possibility that, well, maybe I won't be alive by the time Christ comes. And so we see kind of a shift in his understanding. The third option, and the one that I would believe most likely is this, that Paul knew that the end could come at any time. And so he includes himself, he always includes himself under the possibility that Jesus will return before he is dead. And so this is the way of writing, as one commentator puts it, as a convention, not a prediction. So just a way of writing, not a, this is going to happen in my lifetime. And this is the reality for us, right? We don't know when Christ will return, though we know Christ will return. It could be that Christ will return in our generation, in our lifetime. It is quite possible. It's also quite possible that another thousand years will pass before Christ returns. We don't know. And in the scripture, we're not given the time frame to that. And so no no matter how many times you can count up every letter of the Bible and divide it by some mystical formula and come up with the date of October 25th in 2022, uh, that is not my prediction, by the way. I'm just giving that as an example, Uh, right? As much as you could do that, we don't know when Christ will return, but we do know that, that Christ is going to return. We don't know when, and so it could be in our lifetime. 
uh, I know he will. I know that when he comes again, he will call to his side all of his people, whether dead or alive. And as a side note here, why is Paul writing to the church to encourage them in this way? What do we know about the Thessalonian church? Well, this letter isn't written that long after he had left from them. There's no indication really in the scripture that a lot of um, martyrdom was happening in there, like a lot of the believers were being killed. So why is he so concerned about those who grieve? Because the reality is, Paul's encouragement to this church is, for something that we know will happen. We know people die. Everyone in this room will die. Sorry to break it to you that way. I probably should have used a little bit more care and caution there. You will die unless the Lord returns first. And so what Paul's doing here, he's writing to encourage the church in a situation that will happen and understand that this is written for our benefit too. This will happen. So what will you do when someone that you love in Christ dies? You grieve, but certainly don't do it as those without hope. This is written for our benefit. And so he says, those who are left alive unto the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. He continues, verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The Lord will descend. Acts 1, 6-11, So when they, that is the disciples, had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who is taking up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In the manner that Jesus ascended, he will descend. His second advent will not be like his first. Christ will return again, not as a baby in a manger, but he will come again in the power and authority that he has as king of kings. We celebrate the birth of Christ in anticipation of the second coming of Christ. The first coming was to bring salvation. The second coming is to bring God's people back to himself for all eternity. The call of Christ will go forth and every believer will hear it. The dead in Christ, those who are now asleep, will hear it. Their dead and corrupted bodies will wake and be transformed. They will rise first. They will rise to meet their Savior. Then he continues, verse 17, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we who are alive will be transformed. We will join our now no longer sleeping brothers and sisters in Christ in the air, and we will be with them. Every believer, living and dead, will be together with Christ, their Savior, forever. And understand then, what Paul is saying is that there is no advantage to being alive at the second coming of Christ. And there is no disadvantage to being dead at the second coming of Christ. There is 
all will be transformed. All will be caught up together to be with Christ. And this is the glorious reality to which we long. Look at what he says there at the end of verse 17. And so we will always be with the Lord. Why do we want to join Jesus? Like that's a pretty fundamental question, I think, but but it's an important one for us to consider this morning. Why do we want to be why do we want to join Jesus? Because this Jesus, the Son of God, has shown us such remarkable love. He has done for us what we could never do for us. He is the God of all creation. And he wants to bless us for all eternity. And words really fail here. Words fail to describe the beauty and the glory and the love of Christ Jesus that he has for us. We can at least repeat this refrain out of Revelation 21, 3-4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There will never be any separation between us and God again. There will never be any of the evil things present in this Uh, current world we will be with god always we will see jesus always we will walk by the spirit always we will be god's people for all eternity this is the encouragement of words were to give i want to see us thirdly there the encouragement of words verse 18 therefore encourage one another with these words Paul doesn't give us everything we want to know about the second coming of Christ, but he gives us that which is most essential. He gives us that which will work to lessen the grief of our heart, the grief that we feel at the death of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is the command he gives unto us. Therefore, if all that is true, encourage one another with these words. We are to take these words and encourage one another with them. How do these words bring encouragement? Six things very briefly six things here death is not final the evil one does not win sin will be put away jesus loves us and wants to be with us and us with him the work of christ is accepted by the father and christ is coming second corinthians 4 17 to 18 for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So encourage one another with these words. Paul writes to this beloved church of his to instruct and encourage them in the faith. He knew that they will, as we will, suffer the loss, suffer the the sting of loss of loved ones, he writes here in this passage to encourage them, to, to encourage one another. Don't grieve as those without hope. But always remember that Jesus Christ is coming to gather all of his people. Whether you are alive at Christ's coming or you are asleep at Christ's coming, Christ will gather you to his side. 
Christ is coming to gather his people. And it may well be in our lifetime. We don't know. But we must be prepared to that end. We must find ourselves ready to that end. How do we do that? We trust in Christ. We confess our sins to God. We turn to Jesus and follow after him in all of our ways. We do those good works that God has prepared beforehand for us. And it may seem strange to speak of the hope of death in the midst of Christmas, right? And in Christmas, we think of new babies, right? That, that's, that's, that's what's in our mind. That's what's as certainly the culture instills in us is this is new babies, new life, and the, those kinds of things. But understand that there can never be any new life without the death of Christ. And it is by the work of Christ Jesus on the cross that we have hope today. We celebrate the birth of Jesus because without it, we wouldn't have the death of Christ to pay for our sins. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, be encouraged this morning that Jesus is coming to gather you to his side so that you will be with him always. And encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another, especially when we suffer the loss of a brother or sister in Christ. Encourage one another. Say, don't grieve as those without hope. Grieve, but don't grieve excessively. Know that this person who has died, who has placed their trust in Christ, will rise again. Encourage one another. Paul in this passage doesn't focus on those who do not have this hope, but understand there is only hope in Jesus. And if you don't believe in Christ Jesus, you have no hope. You ought to grieve as those without hope. You stand condemned before God for your sin, for all of the evils and wrongdoing that you have thought and said and done. And you will pay the penalty of your sins. God's righteous holiness demands it. He cannot look upon sin. He cannot look upon your sin without pouring out His divine just wrath. And if Christ were return in this very moment, you would perish in your sin. You will be cast into that utter, eternal, unceasing destruction of the lake of fire. You will want for there to be an end to your sorrow and pain, but there will be none. But by God's mercy and grace, you may yet avoid such a fate. You may yet join Jesus in the air at his second coming. If you repent and believe the gospel, you will be saved. So turn from your sin, confess it, admit it to God, Admit your sin before God. Trust that Jesus is the Son of God. Do this and live. Listen. Do not let this day pass without you going to God and pleading for His mercy. For you may not have another day to come. He is rich in mercy and grace and love. This is our hope. Let us pray. O Father in heaven, indeed we see such the workings of sin around us as as we die, as these mortal bodies decay and are corrupted and and fail and fall. and, And as we die, Father, we grieve. Lord, we grieve that sin has cost us so much. And in some sense, we grieve that sin has cost our Savior so much. But Father, we thank you that you gave your Son, that you gave Christ Jesus unto us for the forgiveness 
of our sins. That you, O Lord God, have done such a work in us. That your Holy Spirit has opened our eyes to see that we would believe in Christ. But Father, we recognize that there are those who do not. There are those who are even in our midst who do not believe in you. And so, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do a work of regeneration in their hearts, that they would have eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts and minds to understand and believe. Father, do this work in this very moment, we pray, that they would have hope in Jesus Christ, that they would join us in the air when Christ returns that they too would be at the Savior's side for all eternity. Oh, Father, we long for that day. We long for that day when these corruptible bodies will put on incorruption, when these mortal bodies will put on immortality, when we will sing and shout, Death, where is your sting? Oh, death, death, you're dead. Oh, Father God, be glorified in us, your people. May we give you all worship and honor and praise as is befitting and right and good and flows from that which you have worked in us. We pray these things unto you, our Lord. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen.